0: Well, it is great to see you. If you want to turn with me in a Bible, if you want to look at uh, Ephesians chapter five, uh, if you do not have one with you, there should be one in a seat uh, near you. If you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that home as a gift. Uh, We think it's critically important. Uh, In fact, the best thing you can hear is the Word of God, and so, uh, and so, um, uh, please take that home with you if you don't have one. Uh, It is, uh, as I said earlier, it's always so uh, incredibly encouraging to worship with you. Uh, Such an amazing, uh, amazing privilege. And so uh, we uh, are in a series um, on worship, a life of worship. And the intent of the whole series is to show you, first of all, the worth of Jesus Christ, and then to show you the work of Christ, and then to show you in eight different ways that we spend a lot of our time here on the earth, how God uniquely designed each of those things to be platforms for us to be worshiping him, but also for other people to observe how we do those things and for them to be inclined to worship the Lord as well. And here today, uh, we're on the topic of marriage, uh, which, is, uh, which is a fun one. And so I want to ask you to bow and let's pray. Let's ask for help. Father in heaven, we come to you and we believe that your word is true and your word tells us that without the power of your Holy Spirit at work in our heart, we won't be able to understand this or believe it or apply it to our life. And so we pray, God, that you would pour out your mercy and your grace upon us. God, in the cloud of loud voices, I pray, Father, that you would help us to hear yours. We thank you so much for the gift of marriage and pray in particular for those who feel beat down in that context. Maybe, they, maybe you feel, Lord, that, Lord, as they just feel burdened by the reality of the barrenness. And hopeless. I pray, Father, that you would use these words, your words, God, to give them hope and encouragement today. We thank you that you love us. We ask that you would speak to your weakness and bring glory to Jesus Christ alone, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every single year in March, there's a very unique gathering, uh, and that is there's a lot of people who gather uh, to um, watch people compete in something called the Stanley and Stella Shouting Contest, okay? Um, there are times when I look at what we do on this earth, and sometimes I try to imagine God's amusement uh, in our contest here on the earth, right? I can see him up and go, hey, Jesus, look, they're shouting and giving out awards for how loud they can be, um, and why, why, why that's always amusing to me uh, when I think of that we have things like a shouting contest is we're told in Psalm 29, verse 5, that the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. In other words, the, the power that is inherent in God's word is literally so piercing and overwhelming that it can actually topple trees. And when we gather and we do these things, it's so important that when we come to a context a context like marriage and we try to give clarity as to what's going on. There's a lot of us in this room that we listen to all of the voices in the world and we hope that God's voice will be louder than the rest. But you need to know this is that if you're listening to the loudest voice on marriage, it's not going to be God's. It's not that he couldn't speak louder than anyone on the earth. It's that he chooses not to. First Kings chapter 19, he tells us how he wants to communicate to us. He says, Elijah, I want you to go up on the top of the mountain and I'm going to show up and I'm going to speak to you. And he gets up there and all of a sudden there's a great wind that even topples and breaks apart rocks. If you're like me and God came to you and said, you go up there and I'm going I'm to show up. I'm going to speak to you. And all of a sudden, there's wind that breaks open romps. I'm assuming that must be God. And the Bible says, but God wasn't in the wind. Next, there was an earthquake. The Bible says that God wasn't in the earthquake. Then there was a great fire that set the mountain on blaze. It says that God was not in the fire. And then it says that God spoke to him by his spirit in a still small voice and Elijah fell upon his face as though he was going to die because he had heard the word of God. So what I'm encouraging you to consider this morning is this, is that if we will open up his word, a word that does not yell at us, it has to be read out loud to hear it. And if we'll tune our heart to his still small voice, Then the chaos of human opinion will literally break down like the cedar tree. And grace and truth will not only flood your heart, but potentially your own home. And so this is what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, there's a whole lot that Paul says there, and I want to show you three dominant things I think that we can take away from this. The first is that marriage was designed by God. You need to understand this, that marriage was not created by a human architect. God created marriage. God was the one who thought it up. And God is the principal mover in the garden that actually created and brought people together to say, I want you to be married. Now, I think it's really important for us to back up just for a second and know where does this passage fall within this book? Ephesians has six chapters the first three chapters that talk about the gospel of what Jesus has made available to us, that we can have new power to live a new kind of life. And then you get to chapter four and verse one says this, therefore, in view of all of this mercy, in view of what's been made available, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then from chapter four, verse two, all the way to the end of chapter six, what he's doing is he's looking at different landscapes of life that you and I find ourselves, whether it's parent-child, whether it's work, whether it's marriage, whether it's friendship. And he's trying to show us, now how do you walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received in this area? Now, I think Paul knows that there's inherent to our hearts a resistance to what God says about marriage. I think he knows that because there's a resistance to what God says about everything. (laughs) But ultimately about marriage. And I think he knows this because when the son of God came from heaven to earth and while he was here on the earth, he spoke to marriage. And in Matthew chapter 19, he tells us that marriage was created by him for one man and one woman to be married together in a covenant that would not be broken except for death. And his own disciples, who have been hanging out with him now for over two years, they respond to hearing Jesus' vision for how he created marriage, and they responded, if that's the case, it's best not to get married. In other words, their vision of marriage and Jesus' vision of marriage was so different that when they heard his, they concluded that it couldn't even be a good thing. And so Paul, now he wants to address this idea this, of marriage on the earth. Why is it here? And aware that his words will be countercultural, what he does is he takes us back in verse 31 to the Garden of Eden when God created it. You see, in verse 31, it's a direct quote where he speaks of leaving and cleaving and becoming one flesh. And where that comes from is the second chapter of the Bible. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we find that exact same quote. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants to anchor everything he's going to teach about marriage back to when marriage was created. And what we find when we go back to chapter 2 is that God is the principal architect. That he is the one literally that creates a man. He says, the man is good. What I've done in creating a man is good. And then the first denouncement in all of scripture is then spoken from God's mouth. And he says, it's not good that he would be alone. And so God makes him take a nap. He takes a rib. He creates Eve out of, out of this rib. Supernaturally, miraculously. And then all of a sudden, as the very first father of the bride, we're told that God brings the man and brings the woman that he created and he brings them together and then joins them together. I've done a lot of weddings here at Providence, a, a lot of weddings, okay? And it's interesting that when, when we get married here, we all think that we're doing a lot at that moment. Actually, we're doing very little. You see, a husband and wife, they make a vow, a pastor makes a declaration, a state makes a recognition, but God is the one who's doing all the joining. We know this because Matthew chapter 19, verse six says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And it's in the context there of marriage. You see, we would be more careful with our marriage if we remembered that it was God who is the one who brought us into it. So anytime we touch marriage, you have to understand you're touching the fingerprints of God. He is the principal mover. Now, why did God do all this? Well, the Bible tells us that God created this marriage. He designed marriage for two primary reasons. First is that God designed marriage to display redemption. You see, God has always been on a mission to display the glory of Jesus Christ in redeeming a sinful people and making them his pure bride. This is why he even says in verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her he's taking it back to redemption that's the story that everything is built upon you see now some people they assume that after jesus died and rose again that god looked around the earth to to find some kind of analogy some illustration to point people to this reality between christ and what he did in redeeming a church for himself and he goes hey look let's work with marriage that'll work that's not how the bible says things went down you see, what the Bible tells us is this, is that right after Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, he says, now this is a profound mystery, but what I'm talking about is Christ and the church. In other words, before the rescue of redemption was even needed, God created marriage to display and to reflect the rescue and how we treat one another. Think about that for a second. He created a visual demonstration of redemption before redemption was needed. You cannot get away from that. You see how God has set things up is that the world looks upon a man as he treats his wife like Christ treats the church and sees a reflection there to say, you know what? I'm a need to worship this Christ. And the world looks upon a woman as she seeks to respect and admire her husband and follow him. And this is supposed to be a picture of how the church respects and admires the strength-giving leadership of our Savior. And in all of this, people begin to see something of the reality of God. You see, you and I were so given to the physical of what we can touch and what we can feel and what we can see with our eyes that sometimes we think that our marriage is the reality and the gospel is the shadow. So when we get into a bad place in marriage, we, we just naturally, instinctively run in to say, this is what matters. Yeah, the whole gospel thing, yeah, whatever. This is what matters. But you have to understand something, is that your marriage is only the shadow. And there is something that is living and real, That is going to last forever. You see you and I. We look at shadows. And by the shadows. We can see something of the real thing. And this is the mysterious plan of God. The plan of God says this. Is I'm going to allow people to watch how you treat one another. The shadow. And by looking at that. They're going to be able to see something true about me. The reality. And so God. Did all this. He designed marriage specifically to display redemption. But amazingly, there's another reason that he designed marriage, and that is to be a gift for our good. To be a gift for our good. You see, you have to understand this. The Bible could be totally true and not end up toward our good. The story doesn't have to end good for us to be true. Isn't it amazing that though God is not obligated to do so, is that He has made everything and every call to glorify Him, He's also made it the very means by which we pursue our greatest good. I love this about God. He never makes us have to compete between, "Am I going to glorify Him or am I going to pursue my health?" They're one and the same. They're tied together forever. You see, in marriage, what we find is some of the most unique gifts that he's given to mankind. One of them is companionship. Just when he talks about leave and cleave and become one flesh, what he's talking about there is that we literally leave our family in the priority of commitment to them. And then we place it upon this individual and we choose to love one another until death do us part. And that kind of encouragement that comes from that kind of companionship literally gives strength to the way we live our life. It was just over a year ago I remember driving out of a home with Tabitha and we had just met with the search committee here at Providence and that that whole season was pretty surreal and to be totally honest with you there was many many days where the whole thing seemed very overwhelming and I remember driving out and we were driving home and, I, and I'm thinking about the weight of okay this happens what does it mean and I look over, we're in the van, I look over and I see Tabitha and she's just smiling. And I, I say, Tabitha, I said, I said, do you not feel the weight of all of this? And she looks over and she goes, Brian, God built you for this. And all of a sudden I, I said, well, I guess, I guess, I guess the conversation is done. I guess, I guess you don't. That's okay. Well, Good. But you see, it's those moments of encouragement to where someone feels frail and another person is there to say, let me be your strength just for a moment. It's an incredible gift. And there's another gift that he gives us and that is that through marriage and the roles that he assigned to marriage that are not arbitrary is that he meets our greatest needs relationally. You see, if I ask the women in this room, what's your greatest needs? I would almost bet that if not all, the great majority would say it's to be loved and it's to be pursued. Guys, just knit that in your heart. I want a man to not only pursue me, I want him to love me, I want him to tell me that he loves me. It's a natural longing, but you know that's not the same longing for a man. The men in this room, they want to be admired and followed. The great majority, I'm not saying that it's not nice to have my wife said, Brian, I love you. But the fact is, I would rather her say, Brian, as she does, I respect you and I admire you and I will follow you wherever you want to go. You see, and so isn't it amazing that God in his, in his, in his incredible creativity and his kindness, not only did he place a relational need in each of our hearts, but then he then assigned within marriage a role and responsibility to each person specifically designed to meet the need. So he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love? He pursued her. He came out of heaven for her. Wives, submit, respect your husband. Admire him. It's an amazing gift that God has given you know, another gift that God gives in marriage to, to, to us is he provides a tremendous light for character development. Marriage is a really, really bright light. You see, every single, every relationship that we're in, every friendship that we're in acts as a light in our dark heart. See, sin made our heart dark. And God's, God, what he's doing is he's systematically opening up doors and shining light in and say, oh, we got to fix that too. Oh, we got to fix that too. And what he does is he plays his people in our life. And sometimes we're, we're not the brightest bulb, right, in the pack. And so sometimes what we do is when we're in a relationship with somebody and there's friction, we naturally just blame. Well, I wouldn't be so impatient if it wasn't for you. Actually, the people in our life, they do not create impatience. They only reveal it. The impatience, it resides here. It's inside of us. The anger, the rage, the bitterness, the resentment, all of it, it's inside. And people, they serve only to unveil it. And so what God does is this, is he calls us to have friends. And have you ever noticed if you have any friend whatsoever, you're bound to have some level of tension in time. And in marriage, what God does is he places somebody in your life and he says, now. This is going to be the brightest light I give you on the whole earth. And the reason is because this person is going to live near you, really close. And they're going to be there until you die. Several years ago, I I say several, now it's uh, 14 years ago, I think, I came home and it was a season of our life where, just to be totally honest with you, I was very unhealthy. Physically, I mean, I, I, I had an eight month headache and I was distressed and I had very little balance in my life in terms of ministry and home. We had two little boys and it, it, like, it, it was just a bad season. Right. And it was self-inflicted. It, it was. It's a lack of wisdom to know what to say yes to and what to say no to. So one day I get home and uh, there's Tabitha. She's waiting at the, at the door and I can tell she's frustrated and, which was obvious because I was an hour and a half late and I didn't tell her, okay? Um, and, which was mistake number one, okay? Uh, this whole story is just a pile of Brian mistakes. You're gonna love it, okay? And so, so, I, so I come up and, and she's just standing there and, and she says, Brian, how can you be this inconsiderate? And so I, I did what every man should not do. I pulled out my, it wasn't a phone at the time, it was a Palm Pilot. You remember those? Remember Palm Pilots? <laughs> Hit the calendar button. And, and I actually did this. I, I turned it around and I said, Tabitha, you tell me when I can get home any sooner. And she just kind of stands there and she turns around and she goes back in. And I, I thought, all right, I fixed this, all right? Yeah. <laughs> Now, I know, I know, you're like, well, oh, bless his heart, bless his heart, you know, yeah, you're so stupid, and uh, and so, um, literally, we don't talk about it again, and nothing changes until three weeks later. I'm still lack of balance, unhealthy, emotionally frozen, tired, exhausted, and, uh, and I got home, and we had dinner, and and uh, sitting, and we finally got the boys down and I'm sitting on the couch and I'm watching a Duke basketball game and Tabitha walks in and she goes, can we talk? And I said, well, sure. She said, years ago, you gave me your 10 life aspirations and told me that this is the kind of man that you want to become. And if I ever see you walking down a path that's going to jeopardize the completion of any one of these, you asked me to tell you. She said, I'm going to be there till the end and I respect you and I admire you, but I want you to know that if you continue your current pace, I believe you will have failed on number two, number four and number five. And I don't think you will have failed, but I think you will get to the end of your life and you will say, I failed. And I love you too much to allow you to do that without warning you. You see, this is some of the benefit of having a friend. And in this context, a spouse. That character development. So the application is let's esteem marriage as God's good creation. You see, God didn't give marriage as a lump of clay for our personal experimentation. In spite of all the noise around us, let's listen to God as still small voice and honor what he created. The second thing I want you to see is that marriage must be tended as an act of worship? It must be tended. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible is, is 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 an amazing story. It's one story. It's all brought together, and it's the story of redemption. And one of the most popular illustrations that God chooses to use is one of a garden. So we read lots of verses about things like the soil types and the seed that goes into the ground and weeds and harvest. Let me show you just a few of those. James chapter 1 verse 21 says, Humbly accept the word planted in you. Paul writes this. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And how I want to encourage you to think about marriage is it's like a garden. And we worship God by tending it. You see, every single day we harvest what we one day planted and we plant what we will one day harvest. There's always a link between seeds we put into the ground and harvest that we enjoy or that we hate. You see, we never plant love and reap resentment. We never plant deception and, and then reap trust. If there's a fruit problem in our marriage, it means that there's a seed problem in our marriage what we are doing in time is reaping a corresponding harvest that we either like or do not like. And what you have to understand is that we cannot expedite good fruit growing in our marriage any more than you can expedite your tomatoes to grow in your real garden. But we can tend our marriage. We can pull up the weeds. We can plant good seeds and we can wait in prayer for God to move as only he can move. And so by By saying that, what I'm saying is this, is if you look at your marriage right now and it just looks like a like like a barren, dry wasteland, what you have to understand is this. There were specific decisions that were made and actions that have been made over time that has led to this. And you need to be able to have the wisdom to trace the fruit back to the seed. And why that's important is because God has promised that if you plant new seed, there will be a corresponding harvest in time that can be better than what you currently know. And so what are some of these ways for us to tend our marriage as an act of worship? First, husbands, let's love our wives. He tells us submitting out of reverence for Christ, husbands, love your wives. Literally, Jesus is calling us to display our respect and admiration for him by the way that we treat our wife. So, what does this look like? Well, what it means is that we take our strength that God has endowed us and we literally use that strength for the good of our wife. Jesus said, Let the leader become one who serves. What this also means in terms of how we love is that we joyfully provide a pattern of initiative. I don't know if you ever notice this, but when people date, if there's no context for the relationship and if there's no purpose and there's no stated direction in it, eventually what takes place is a woman will instinctively say, where is this going? And you need to know something. If a woman has to say, where is this going? It's because the man is not providing enough initiative and clarity of where it's going. But what you find is this, is that a woman's desire for clarity in the relationship does not end when a ring is on her finger. Is that marriage continues to be a journey of progress where a man continually says, this is the next hill we want to scale and this is the next valley we want to cross. And so this initiative, this, this, this intent to pursue her is critically important and it does not end until we are in the grave. Another way that we can love our wives is by pointing our marriage to God. You see, if you know God, you can be a spiritual leader in your home and you do not have to be the most mature person in your home to be the leader because the leader is only the person that's pointing everyone to God. You're not pointing everyone to yourself. You're just saying, there he is. Let's look over there. And listen. If the people in your family, your wife, if they are as mature as they think that they are, they will appreciate every aspect of pointing that you give them to Jesus. They won't find it condescending, nor will they embarrass you for small ideas. And last, I think it's, As we lead, as we courageously pursue cultural expressions that affirm a woman's dignity. Not every culture does the same thing. But here in America, it's naturally, instinctively something that we say, you know what? Men open the doors for a woman. And even if the world falls apart and people stop doing that, we lose our mind. We don't have to stop doing that. Right? Because we're tending a marriage. We're seeking to use our strength for the good of someone else. So how else can we? tend our marriage. Well, wives, let's respect our husbands. He says, submitting out of reverence for Christ, wives submit to your own husbands. Now, did you notice in verse 21, what he does is he totally takes out any of our ability to say he or she is not worthy of it. Because what he says is Jesus is worthy of it. It's out of our reverence for him that we're going to do these things with each other. You see, a man does not need to be as respectable as you want him to be to affirm some level of admiration any more than a woman doesn't have to be as lovely as a man wants her to be to show her love. We all have a concept for unconditional love, and we all have no concept for unconditional respect. But I want you to know something, ladies. Your husband needs it. And on my best days, I make it very easy for my wife to admire But then there's a lot of other days. And if she chooses not to respect and not to admire and not to seek to encourage in those moments, it may be for her to do that but it shoots the marriage in the foot and the reason is because god's created our heart so that when a woman feels love she's inclined to respect and when a man feels respected he's inclined to love so if at any point in time someone withdraws love or respect the other person loses their inclination to do the same and so what does this look like Well, I would encourage you, ladies, avoid calling out your husband's weakness in public or in prayer requests. I would encourage you to give words of affirmation after success and failure and to acknowledge the pursuit that he is giving by saying thank you. The third thing that we can do to tend our marriage is to forgive one another. Several years ago, I asked a married couple who was in my office to tell me the cause of the strife in their marriage. To my surprise, they each responded simultaneously by stating the other person's name. (laughs) You see, friends, healthy marriages are healthy because the people in those marriages learn to find joy in confessing and canceling debts. See, the only lever that's strong enough to lift the wrath in our own heart for how we've been offended is the same lever that was strong enough to lift the wrath of God in God's heart towards us. And that's the gospel. That's why Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave. You. you see, when the grace that we have received from God is extended to our spouse, marriage gets better in time. And when that grace is withheld from our spouse, marriage gets bitter in time. What I want to do right now is I want to show you a video of a real marriage that applied these same principles and God has rescued it. Watch this.
1: Heather and I met in uh, law school at Carolina. Um, we uh, actually met at orientation. Uh, or There was an open house that they had a few weeks before school started.
2: And he was sitting in the row right behind um, me. And my mom was there with me. And
1: At a point during a break, Uh, I announced to everybody that I was still looking for a roommate and for a place to live.
2: My mom wraps her arm around me and looks back at him and says, not with my baby girl. Uh, And so we
1: got a big chuckle out of that. Uh, Not nearly as much of a chuckle as we got a couple years later as we got to know each other more.
2: So we went the whole first year of school without talking. Um, And the second year, we were in a class together. And he sat right in front of me. And he was his charming self that made me laugh.
1: And um, we had our first date at the law school prom in October, October 13th, and uh, we were married 10 months later. During our courtship, um, we were referred to Bob Stansel for some marriage counseling.
2: And he met with us for a few sessions um, before we were married, and uh, we thought we had it all figured out and quickly found out we couldn't have been more wrong.
1: It didn't take us very long, entire marriage, to know that even though we loved each other very much, we didn't know how to love each other in any sacrificial or unselfish way, in any godly way.
2: You know, we would call our friends and our family for um, affirmation of each one of us. You know, I would call my people if I wanted them to tell me I was right. He would call his people if he wanted to hear he was right, and we did that a lot rather than talking to each other.
1: Within a couple months of being married, uh, I went back to Bob and explained to Bob why this was not going to work. Uh, I don't remember a lot about our conversation, but I remember very distinctly a verse that Bob shared with me during our time together, and that was from 1 Peter uh, 3.7. and it says husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker vessel and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that your prayers may not be hindered and for whatever reason that verse totally resonated with me and uh, really wrecked my heart for heather and uh, revealed to me um, how inconsiderate i had been of her uh, how disrespectful i had been of her i left that meeting with bob with some hope um, I knew that it was going to take a lot of work for us to resurrect what was essentially um, a dead marriage at that point.
2: And he came back to our little apartment and um, sat me down and told me that he was not going anywhere, that he loved me, and he was going to fight for our marriage. And I told him I loved him, and um, he would have to tell me that frequently. and. Um, Not just tell me, but show me too by being there when I would wake up and when I'd go to bed. He earned my trust, and those walls started coming down when um, I knew that I could trust him to be there and not walk out. I think for me especially, it's been really important to teach our daughter, Addie, who is four, almost five, who sees divorce um, around us, that... We are always going to be mommy and daddy, and we are always going to be married and living under the same roof. It may not always be pretty, but we're going to love each other, and we're going to forgive each other even though we may not like each other some days. So we're trying to instill in her um, that mindset that you commit to someone when you love them and that she can be secure in her home with her mom and dad.
1: Us being here today is not the result of anything that Heather and Josh did. It's a result of submitting to the Lord and allowing Him to be the Lord of our lives and letting the Holy Spirit stir our affections for one another and for Him. And through that, the healing has happened. Uh, I don't think that Heather and I, when we got married, ever imagined that the way that we love each other today was even possible. Uh, And I know that that that's from the Holy Spirit allowing us and stirring our affections for one another.
0: So we want you to know that there really is hope that when we leverage even our heart and our decisions out of a reverence for Christ, longing to worship him, that God can do miraculous things in our life. The third and last thing, and it'll be short, is that marriage must be protected and prepared for as an act of worship. You see, I realize that not everyone in this room is married. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says marriage should be honored by all. So what we need to know and understand is that if we reap whatever we sow, then whatever we're sowing into our ground as a single person will also reap a harvest even when we are a married person. It's interesting for 20 years here at Providence, I've been asked the wrong question. And what I mean by that is, perpetually, in particular, 14 years as the singles pastor here at Providence, I was asked, how do I know if he or she is the one? He <laughs> said, well, why is that the wrong question? It's wrong because the question puts the man or woman on an extended trial to meet our needs, to fit our personality and to satisfy our desires while we remain unexamined, unquestioned, and unassailable in all of our own desires. So I want to encourage you, those of you who are even considering marriage, One of the things you get to do is to honor marriage by even protecting it and preparing for it. So I wanna encourage you to ask the right questions. Ask questions like, am I the kind of man or woman a godly man or woman would want to marry? Ask questions like, am I thinking like a relational consumer? You say, well, what is that? That's someone that test drives a relationship like a rental car without any regard for the spiritual and emotional wear and tear all the while keeping their eyes out for a newer model. Maybe a question like, am I committed to participate in the lifelong sanctification of another person if you're contemplating marriage with somebody? You see, your goal should not be to date long enough until you're confident marriage is gonna be easy, but to date just long enough to discern if you're willing to love and to forgive this imperfect person into the perfect arms of Jesus Christ. And so as a church family, let's honor marriage in the way we love it, the way we think about it, in the way that we treat it, in the way that we tend it, and in the way that we prepare for it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your incredible love for us. We pray, Father, that as we consider these things, I pray for those who feel hopeless right now. I pray, Father, that you would give them hope. I pray, Father, for marriages that are literally inside the mouth of a lion about to be devoured. I pray, Father, that love would be effectual and would pull the marriage out of that mouth. I pray, Father, that you would give grace to those who are in need of grace and strength, to those who are in need of strength, and that you would continue to fortify our marriages and our homes for your glory and for our good. So, God, we love you. We thank you that we get to give to you now, not only with our things, but also with our words as we sing one last song. So, God, would you use this word to address our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.